Today's scripture reading is from John 18, 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And he had said this, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone, and good morning. Uh, Thank you, the Knott's twins, for cleaning up this, I've heard of car wash, but this uh, pulpit wash is certainly great, something that doesn't happen all the time. So, but the abundance of water, blessing that is all, always shared in baptism is really wonderful. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here as a scholar in residence. So that means my daytime job is as a professor at Vanderbilt and during weekends and so on. I serve here uh, preaching every once in a while and also teaching adult Sunday school. So before we look to the um, word, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, And our gracious Lord, as we have been going through this series called The Foundational Doctrines of the Reformation, that you will help us to understand this historical movement that brought together a number of different desires and forces to purify the church, though not without fault. And pray, O Lord, that you will continue to help us as we seek you above all, as we seek you, especially in this worship service, through the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and also of the word read and preached and listened to and digested, may all of these things bring you glory and bring us your joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's do a quick uh, word picture association game as we begin our sermon together. Think of the word king. What or who comes to your mind? So when I asked this question, same question to a number of different audience, some of them said this, Elvis, the king of rock. Yet others said king as in Kong, King Kong. Some others have mentioned king as in King James. Uh, May not be as familiar to some, certainly not as Elvis Presley, but King James the sixth and the first of Scotland and England, most famous for the King James Version of the Bible, 
And then another king right there is LeBron James, King James. And while we dwell in the realm of sports, there's another king who's called King Felix. Do you remember, do you know him? King Felix, Felix Hernandez of the Mariners. He might not have performed in a royal or regal manner this year or the last couple of years, but he has yet to abdicate his throne as King Felix of Seattle. Thank you. So today's king that we're going to be talking about is Jesus Christ the King. Today's text that has just been read for us introduces us to a courtroom scene, a Roman outpost of the imperial court system administered by Pontius Pilate, perhaps the most famous or infamous Roman governor that makes appearance in the stories of the New Testament. In fact, as you think about this particular courtroom scene, I think you will agree with me that this is perhaps the most important courtroom scene in the history of jurisprudence. Bettering the courtroom scene of O.J. Simpson, Richard Nixon and the grand jury after the Watergate affair, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the leading Nazi war criminal who was tried in Israel in May of 1960. The irony of the significance is that if you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, indeed truly divine and truly human, then to have God stand trial, sentenced to death, as we will see soon, and executed as a state criminal stretches us beyond the breakpoint of credulity, a theme we'll come back later on. So let's actually do a quick rundown of today's text and offer a brief analysis of what is there. As is obvious, Jesus is arrested in this chapter, chapter 18 of the text of the gospel. And furthermore, Peter, his top three disciple, denies ever knowing him three times in this chapter. Jesus is brought firstly to Caiaphas, the high priest for that particular um, liturgical year. Then Jesus is sent to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. This was, as you could tell from the text, Passover time, which means it's an extremely busy time in the liturgical calendar of first century Jews. Needless to say, Jesus was a Jew, and the fact that his death was about to occur right before Passover would have tremendous significance for the followers of Jesus in their interpretation of the identity of their Lord, Rabbi, and Savior. The leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's place. The writer in verse 28 of today's text mentions that the desire for ritual purity prevented them from entering this uh, pagan um, palace, thereby heightening the oddity and peculiarity of Jewish customs, most of which were plainly strange to Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman. He didn't like being there in Judea. He didn't understand the Jewish culture, and certainly he was perplexed about this whole exchange, the strange and perhaps the most significant event in his entire political career, perhaps his entire life. Pilate said in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Then the objection from some of the Jewish leaders was, but we have no right of execution, you do. Then John the Evangelist offers his parenthetical commentary. He says, this took place to, fulf to fulfill what Jesus has said about the kind of death he was about to die. Do you know why John says it here, offering this parenthetical commentary? For the readers of the text, in case they're about to freak out and say, what on earth is going on? 
why is this happening to us? John is saying to them, hey, it might look like God has left the throne here, and things are completely and chaotically out of control, but that's actually not true. This happened to fulfill what Jesus had said already in the past. I think Pilate becomes both confused, irritated, and even gripped with fear. Because if you do some kind of a comparative studies between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels, especially Matthew chapter 27, I don't know if you know that particular bit. Pontius Pilate's wife had a dream, and she had a nightmare. She had a nightmare about this man named Jesus. So she actually told him not to do any harm to this person. So understandably, Pontius Pilate is really confused, even truly afraid. Thus the question, are you the king of the Jews? It is not just an intellectual query. It was actually a question that is born out of this confusion and fear. And it is within this context, I think Jesus really shows us who is truly king and what that means for us. So we're going to have three points to consider this morning. The first point is the nature of the kingdom. The second point is the identity of the king. And the third point is the irony of the king's subjects. So we're going to talk about the nature, identity, and irony. I couldn't think of the first word that begin with I to make it quite a nice alliteration. So nature, identity, and irony. We have looked at the threefold office of Christ in the past two Sundays, and we'll finish that today. Prophet, two Sundays ago, priest last Sunday, and king the third Sunday today. All have Old Testament precedents, as you perhaps know, anointed with oil, signifying that they were set aside for divine purposes within the economy of Israel as the apple of God's eyes. Around the time of ministry of Jesus, the word kingdom was an elusive, if not an illusory, concept. They hadn't had a king for for quite some time. On the contrary, Babylonian captivity and exile and Roman foreign occupation hardly qualify for the presence of God's kingdom at all. They were most definitely and ardently longing for the the kingdom to reappear as a result, so much so that texts such as the book of Daniel was written in order to offer God-ordained cheer and encouragement for a group of exiles living as refugees, reminding them the kingdom of God of Israel was not dead. In this prophetic discourse, the kingdom was yet to come. And we'll look at this Daniel text in just a few minutes. This kingdom was to be bigger than Babylon, or as kids will say, badder than Nebuchadnezzar, but not yet visible. Therefore, the nature of this kingdom had two aspects we should consider together, and this is inseparably linked to the kingdom of Jesus, who was standing trial as a potential criminal. First aspect of this nature of this kingdom is its invisibility. Invisibility, and secondly, invincibility. So let's think about the invisibility of the kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. This was a key insight that helped many Protestants to get a better bearing about the kingdom of God and Christ as their king. The Reformation was a refugee movement. Did you know that? As we are celebrating this month, this whole Um, the solas of the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a refugee movement because many people, due to religious convictions and commitments, had to leave their native lands and go to countries that were not of their birth. 
and they had to go settle there, sometimes, you know, as most definitely and always as refugees and exiles. And they understood that the kingdom of God was going to be invisible in many ways. Because if you're Catholic then, and perhaps even now, you can think of the Vatican as the earthly manifestation of the reign of Christ's kingdom. But for many Protestants, they focus on the invisibility of the kingdom as a rallying point of their new religious, political, and cultural movement. The kingdom of God is invisible. For many of them, the error of making the one-to-one -one correspondence between the power of earthly kingdom and the kingdom of God was what gave them the problem of the purity and the unity of the church in the first place. Think about that. The over inordinate identification, one-to-one -one identification between the kingdom of earth and kingdom of God, if taken to its logical extreme, could have some disastrous consequences, and history provides us with abundance of examples of that sort. John Calvin, a refugee pastor from France who reluctantly settled in Geneva, Switzerland, never had the opportunity to return to his homeland. He wrote what is regarded as one of the most important texts in early modern history of Christianity, wrote this book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. In his book 2, chapter 15, section 4, he said these words about the identity of Christ's kingdom. He says, we have said that we, have said that we can perceive the force and usefulness of Christ's kingship only when we recognize it to be spiritual. For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Jesus Christ does not consist in outward advantages. Listen to what he says. He is a refugee. He says, look, what Jesus promises us when he says, I am with you and I'll never leave nor forsake you, is not going to be contained in outward advantages of this visible life of ours. So the kingdom of God is invisible, not of this visible world. It is not Rome. It is not Canterbury. It is not Constantinople. It is not Wittenberg if you're Lutheran. If you're not, it's not Geneva if you're Presbyterian. It is going to be of, not of this world. At the same time, that's connected to the other point about the nature of kingdom. Not only is it invincible, it is also, not only is it invisible, it is also invincible. Invisibility and invincibility. If you have your Bibles, you can take out your phone and look up Daniel chapter 2. Or if you have an actual copy of it, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Because there you see one of the strange dreams that the earthly potentate, this mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, has. Nebuchadnezzar has a strange dream about the statue that shows up. And Nebuchadnezzar is truly perplexed. What just happened to me? And he's deeply troubled, so he calls for all the sages and dream interpreters to come and tell him what the dream's about. And no one could actually face up to this formidable task because one of the things was if the king says your interpretation is wrong, you're going to lose your life. I mean, imagine that. Imagine taking a test that if you fail, you're dead, literally. So then then everyone was like, no, it ain't me, it ain't me. And then somebody said, oh, there is a guy, there's one of these Jewish exiles, his name is Daniel. He might be able to help you. And Daniel, full of, you know, at one level full of fear, but at the same time full of faith, he comes forth and says, you know, you are, the, you are king here, but there's somebody else who is in charge, not only of all of our stories, but of dreams and our aspirations. And I'm going to tell you what this dream means because I've heard from the Lord. So in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, there's this big, big statue of enormous size. Head was of gold, chest and arms was of silver, 
belly and thighs was of bronze, legs were of iron, feet were of partly iron and partly clay. And then you know what happens in the dream, right? And then a rock shows up out of nowhere and completely destroys into smithereens this huge statue. And the interpretation, do you remember? Daniel says, let me give you the interpretation. This is, you are the mighty king, and you're the first kingdom that shows up, but then there will be another kingdom not as strong as yours. The third kingdom will come, fourth kingdom will come, and the fifth kingdom will come, and the final kingdom that will come will topple over all the other kingdoms, and it'll level the playing field completely. And Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate and says, you are the follower of the true God, so forth and so on. Now think about this, this dream and this interpretation. Because in the history of Jewish and Christian interpretation, this text has become one of those key texts to think about, think afresh, imagine creatively, imagine faithfully about the nature of the kingdom of God. Because this rock that's going to come and just destroy everything else and level everything was going to be part of the glory of the divine messianic rule. The identity of that figure had remained the main brunt of Jewish Christian interpretive divergences meaning they didn't agree. Who the Messiah was and what the kingdom of God would actually entail was going to be and remains one of the key divisions between Judaism and Christianity. That actually leads me to my second point. The second point is the identity of the king. The nature of this kingdom was going to be invisible, right? And also it's going to be invincible. But so often in our life, we don't really experience the, we may experience the invisibility all right, but we don't really experience the invincibility at all. Partly perhaps because it's invisible that we don't, and because of its invisibility, we feel like it is going to be defeated all the time. Therefore, I think it is important for us to think about the identity of this king, Christ the King. I don't know about you, but for me, for whatever reason, every time I think of Christ the King, that phrase, it just kind of pumps me up. Christ the priest, Christ the prophet, yeah, I get it, but then every time I pass on Belmont Boulevard, Christ the King, Catholic Church, I say, yeah, Christ the King. That's kind of my favorite of the three titles. It may just tell you more about my own base desires for power, perhaps, but I, maybe it's because we don't really understand the whole concept of Christ's kingship in a way. So let's look at the identity of the king. Verse 37, Pilate says, so you are a king then. And Jesus responds to that by saying, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. It is potentially non sequitur. Jesus says, Pilate says, you're a king then. Notice Jesus never says yes or no. He says, you say that I'm a king. And scholars are divided. Did Jesus affirm that he was a king or not? But he says, okay, you say that I'm a king, and let me tell you, I'll give you an interesting spin on this because I was born into this world in order to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Friends, think about where Jesus is right now. Where is Jesus as he's talking to Pilate? He's what? He's in chains, and what is he actually doing? He's standing trial, right? Pilate was probably going to be somewhere here, and Jesus will be down there. And Jesus is saying, everyone on the side of the truth listens to who? Listens to me. 
Don't you see how subversive his statement actually is? If you're on my side, then you will belong to the truth party. Then you'll know who you really are, and you'll truly be free. He's saying, Pontius Pilate, make no categorical mistake, buddy. You think you're in charge. You think you have power. You have none of it. I came into this world to testify to the truth. The identity of this king is that he is the king of truth, who defines truth, who judges truth and falsehood, whose life embodies and thus testifies to the truth. But the irony here, as we have said earlier, is that the one who was tried and judged and soon to be executed is the one who was also the judge of Pilate's heart. He's also the judge of my heart and our hearts. Another aspect of the identity of this king is that here is the king whose identity will be revealed most definitively through the gruesome death on a cross, whose crowning achievement, pun fully intended, was death by Roman imperial execution. Think about the word crucifixion. Think about the cross. We have cross over crucifix over there and some other places in our building over there as well. And we actually, by doing so, memorialize it, but at the same time, unfortunately and completely unplannedly, we sanitize the cross. What did I say? We sanitize the offense of the cross. You know, imagine if we were to go to 40, uh, 2,000 years forward in a time capsule, and we go and visit a group of earthlings worshiping. And in their sanctuaries on each side are no longer crucifixes, but instead there's, there are two electric chairs. That would be truly weird, right? It is the instrument of, instrument of state execution. So the oddity of this kind of adorning of your neck, some of you have crucifix as part of your necklace and jewelry, if Roman Christians were to come back and saw that, if Roman citizens were to come back and saw you wearing that, they would find that as a cultural offensive and stupidity. Like, what are you doing? You see, we sanitize Jesus' death on a cross. Most people had no idea who Jesus was, and when he was crucified, most of his followers deserted him, right? And then the throngs of people who had listened to him once or twice, they're not going to say, what a great guy, he shouldn't have died. He identified with the lostness and damnation and death of humanity to this extent, drinking down to the dregs of the cup of God's wrath so that he can definitively demonstrate his solidarity with the most despicable among us all. One of my favorite lines in contemporary praise music is this one. O Christ, my King of sympathy. O Christ, my King of sympathy, whose wounds secure my peace. Your grace extends to call me friend. Your mercy sets me free. I love that phrase, Christ, my King of sympathy. When I think about who Christ is, I think of the fact that he sympathizes with my own frailty, with my own fallenness, with my faithfulness, faithlessness, and he is my King of sympathy. The late Charles Colson, who started after his own involvement in the Watergate scandal, after his release, started this ministry called Prison Fellowship. And it tells the story of a prison reform effort that actually was quite successful in Mexico. Warden of this uh, kind of well-known prison led a group of people interested in knowing more about the prison reform there. 
And they come to this one corner cell, a cell of solitary confinement, and the warden says something that the visitors were, quite frankly, unprepared. They, he said, here is the cell for Jesus who is doing time for all of us. Here is the solitary confinement cell for Jesus. He is doing time with and for all of us. I teach a course every other year at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison right here in our city. And every time I teach there, this coming semester, I teach a course called History of Theodicy in Christian Tradition. And it seems to me that my brothers there intuitively get the fact that they are lost. And in the eyes of the world, they are damned. And they understand, therefore, much more gratefully the fact that Jesus would identify with them. The fact that Jesus would do, do time with and for them. I often think about the inversion of who's truly blessed. I think of the fact that every time I drive away from Riverbend, thinking this question, who is more blessed? Surely I enjoy the earthly comforts of life outside a prison cell. Yet for my brothers in that and for my sisters in those facilities, for them to know that Jesus is the king of sympathy resonates deeply with them the fact that Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is surely the king, king of sympathy. But another aspect of Christ's kingly identity is that he is truly king of kings and lord of lords that we will see in this kind of eschatological vision or something that is yet to come and the foretaste of which is beginning to be seen right through the ministry of the church, whether it is with wrestling with and acting upon the desire to do things about foster care or taking care of our widows and orphans and our foreigners, whatever it may be. Revelation chapter 19 has this wonderful vision. He says, the writer says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges war and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. This is really a perplexing vision at one level. Many animals show up and they're, you know, kind of whore Babylon and the dragon and lake of fire. But amid all of these kind of potentially cacophonous visions stands this character who is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is also similar and identical to this lamb who was slain. So he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last October, I had the privilege of delivering a couple of talks in Istanbul, Turkey, and it was on the Trinity, and I had a chance to visit this world-famous Hagia Sophia. And there in this wonderful church, which is now a, an Islamic mosque, um, it, is, uh, it has this kind of wonderful mosaic of Christ as Pantocrator, which is the other slide, actually, but we'll talk about that one, too. That one, have you seen that picture? Okay, the word Pantocrator, the Greek word Pantocrator means the Lord of all things or the, someone who is truly an omnipotent ruler. Think of Jesus Christ in that serene posture 
with halo and all that and with the crucifix behind him, but he's now risen. And he is ruling all things out of justice, out of truth, out of love, and out of perfection. And that's the picture that we are often um, forgetful of, that Christ is that king as well as the one who was crucified. And there is the sort of a tension for many Christians. We need to identify both with Christ the crucified one as well as Christ the Pantocrator. And another slide that will help us to understand that is that this is in a smaller church in Kora, uh, which is also in Istanbul. It's a powerful demonstration. Is, um, so you can see, obviously, the centerpiece is Jesus. And at the bottom, that looks like a, a, in this boat, there's a mummified figure that is Satan. And to his right and to his left are the figures of, guess who they might be? Adam and Eve. So this powerfully depicts for us Christ stomping on Satan who is bound up like a mummy and Christ extending his resurrected hands to Adam and Eve, thereby signifying that the gates of hell, power of Satan, the reverberations of the curse of God could not, could not stand in the way of Christ the victor. The identity of the king is Christ as the crucified one, Christ as the king of sympathy, but also at the same time Christ who is, whose kingdom is already here, but not yet completed. That leads me to the third and the final point, the irony of the king's subjects. After uttering what is truth, Pilate goes out and says to the leaders of the people of Israel, I find no basis for a charge against him. I want to release him. What about you? And they retort by saying, no, 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 not him. Because in this, one, in this year, you can release one person. And Pilate says, you know, you want me to release this king of the Jews or Barabbas? And they all said in unison, give us Barabbas. The question that often comes back to me every time I read this text is, why did they miss him? Why did their leaders who are steeped in scriptural tradition and understanding of the, you know, understanding of the law of God why did they miss him? I don't say that in a sort of a accusatory fashion at all, because I asked that question for myself. Would I have identified Christ correctly and say, release our king of the Jews? Or would I have joined in unison with the leaders and say, release Barabbas? Theological truth must lead to the right existential application in our path of costly disciples. In John 1, in the beginning of the Gospels, he says, you know, the Word became flesh, and he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We can take that in multiple levels. Jesus came to those who should know Jesus' identity, yet they missed him. The irony of the king's subjects is that many who are supposed to have gotten this figured out did not, and many who were not beneficiaries initially of the work of Yahweh became unplanned, at least humanly speaking, and completely planned in the eyes of God, mind of God, beneficiaries of this king's rule. I want to quote something else from Calvin in the same vein of talking about how Christ rules as our king. For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in our outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all hard and abounding with delight, such as the fleshly commonly longs after. Therefore, it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our King will never leave us destitute. 
but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we're called to triumph. Such is the nature of his rule that he shares with, and watch this, listen to this, that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. What Calvin is saying is that the kingly rule of Jesus is not some kind of parsimonious and stingy rule. Calvin says, look, what Jesus does, he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. What he guarantees is that I will be with you. Through thick and thin, I will be with you. On Friday, I was at Opryland Hotel officiating a wedding. And every time I do a wedding, I am, once again, this is a really powerful covenantal kind of, you know, making ceremony where we say that until death do us part, that I'm going to be with you through thick and thin, death and life and whatever, joys and sorrows. And Jesus is saying that, and Jesus' covenantal commitment will never fail. Jesus says the irony of Christ's subjects is that we fail and falter and just founder away. Jesus says, my words will never fail. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So the application for me is it it empowers me to even attempt great things for our king as we expect great things from our king. Let me finish with this powerful quote, I think, from one of our modern-day philosophers, Run DMC. There is a song called Down with the King. Because of all the things that I bring with me, only G-O-D could be a king to me. And if the G-O-D be in me, then the king I will be. The microphone is granted when it's handed to me. Only G-O-D could be a king to me. May this G-O-D who has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection empower and encourage and enlighten you in our journey toward this great, great king of sympathy. Let's pray. Lord, we pray, first of all, for the children that were baptized today. What a beautiful blessing it is for us to be able to witness the glory and the power of your kingdom. As they are beautifully and covenantally enlisted as your soldiers, as your faithful followers, may you use them to further your kingdom and help us to know, for all of us, that to be used by you is the greatest privilege we could ever have. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. We love you for you have loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.